also say a toe to so. You know what? A toe to so. A fucking a toe to so. Cast your mind back to the summer of 2020. Coronavirus is raging, political anger and unrest are exploding all across North America. Statues and monuments have become the focus of some of this energy. Most people see them as symbols of oppression, colonialism, racism, and imperial war, and want them torn down. Other people see them as necessary, even proud signifiers of historical memory. People like Ihor Mihail Chashin, CEO of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, or UCC. Ihor was angry with the way the press had treated the, vandaboli- the <laughs> vandalism. Ihor was uh, angry with the way the press had treated the vandalism of a memorial statue at the St. Volodymyr Ukrainian Cemetery in Oakville, Ontario. Someone had spray-painted the words Nazi war monument on it, and the RCMP were investigating it as what they called a hate crime. But the strange thing was... The statue is, in fact, a Nazi war monument. It is a monument to the 14th Waffen Grenadier Division of the SS, also known as the 1st Galician Division. And for a few weeks, Canadians finally began to ask why. Why do we have memorials to literal Nazi divisions in our country, and why does the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress think this is a good thing? Today, on Bottleman, Riley and I are joined by journalist Yasha Levine, to trace this history, talk about weaponized immigrants, examine the relevant contributions and connections of a very famous Canadian politician and her family, uh, to unpack how Canada became what I like to call the Miami of Ukraine. Um, Yasha, welcome to The Bottleman. How are you doing? Oh, yeah. I'm, do- I'm doing all right. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's, a, it's an honor. Indeed. Uh, and I'm, I'm just excited to find out... Um, so much more about uh, this this mystery politician uh, and her family. Uh, I um, I assume this is Kim Campbell. Yes. Yeah. The answer might surprise you. <laughs> I I hear that if you criticize this politician, uh, you will automatically be uh, accused of being part of a Russian disinformation network. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if we want to take that step. To be honest. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I've already uh, done some self denunciation as. Uh, as uh, a Russian asset, you know. That's uh, right. We're, Yasha, we're... you and I have both been accused many times of uh, being in the pay of uh, of uh, Commandant Putin. I, mean, I, I won't deny that in um, the spring of uh, 2017, uh, we, you and I, Dan, uh, we tried to do regime change in Mace- Macedonia. <laughs> I won't deny that we were we, there. We were you know? there. We went to uh, we went to the old Vimero offices, which have been closed for <laughs> I think fifteen or twenty years. Um, uh, and what I'm doing, but, I'm taking. That's all we have to say on this ball. I, I, I'm taking out this uh, CD copy of "With Apologies to Queen Mary," and it looks like looks like I can just scratch a little bit off here. It's apologies to Zarina Anastasia. Oh my God, he is Russian. <laughs> 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 That's no, right. Um, it's this is it's it's very no. If you criticize uh, this politician, if you ask any questions about her family background, uh, then uh, you are a uh, Canadian uh, Bernie bro. Basically, you're a bro. Uh, you're toxic, and uh, you're uh, part of the regressive left who uh, is preoccupied with just just a bunch of like Nazi stuff that happened in her family. Yeah, yeah. You're you're part. You're part of the progressive left who are uh, simultaneously uh, communists and also hate women. 
Yes, absolutely. <laughs> to get there, um, we're going we're gonna to have to lay some uh, historical groundwork. We're going to have to build the foundation. Um, and some of this stuff we've covered already on our Victims of Victims of Communism series. But I think we're going to focus specifically on uh, the Ukrainian diaspora. Uh, you know, their evolution from a leftist, uh, a generally leftist group or agnostic group of people to um, a, a political force that is uh, espousing some long dead nationalist ideology. So, I mean, it seems like the tendency we're talking about, it's, it, it is it, it, a lot of the same sort of, um, I mean, it, look, it, 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 to me, it seems like it is really, it is different sides of one story. Where just like you know, like the um, after the Second World War, the sort of U.S. you know whether it's you know security organization, um, scientific establishment, cultural establishment, whatever, just sort of wholeheartedly welcomed like Nazis so long as they were both elite and also useful for you know anti-communism. That's right. Um, and you know, and and it's kind of a little bit of the um, same story. Nazis are Nazis are all Nazis. Uh, I'd like to make a point of uh, order here. Uh, Nazis are always useful against anti against communism. Uh, I don't think there is a Nazi who is not useful against communism. <laughs> I think that is part of their um Indeed. part of what they uh, what they are for. Part of for. their enduring appeal with liberals. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's, it's you just yeah. you can't beat the real thing. In terms of anti, it's more than a brand. It's more than a brand. It's the quality. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's it, well, it's right. like a, it's like Kleenex. You know, it started as a brand, but now it's uh, refers to the whole thing. Um, but no, <laughs> but I, what I think what I'm getting at here is that you know there was this there there was this kind of you know like syncretic merger of you know the uh, the liberal of the liberal West and the sort of remnants of the sort of fascist Europe that sort of happened. Uh, in that time, and it, I guess, like Dad said, it's one that we've sort of discussed before, but in the very sort of specific way of how we led up to like these almost like um, Canadian gladio organizations. Yeah. Um, that, that, that culminates in the Victims of Communism Memorial, and I think this is another story of like how liberal how how liberal politics sort of in its in pursuit of of anti communism sort of cheerfully um and and easily you know um aligns itself with some uh you might say extremely nationalist elements you know and so it's a, to me it is it is essentially another another prism in this awful awful diamond in the history of our country <laughs> yeah the poison kaleidoscope um so i mean would you consider it to be you know the sort of the influx of um these you know uh right wing or you know national sort of, sort of fascist affiliated or uh, fascist adjacent or straight up, you know, Nazi collaborator uh, emigres. I mean, do, would you consider that to be the, one of the most significant developments in modern um, Canadian history? I mean, in terms of just like the, 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 the change inside, inside the country, you know, um, is it like one, is it up there? And, is, you know, and is it, is it up there? Is like one of the most important ones? Would you consider I, th that? I think it's up there just because of how little it's been, uh, engaged with or uh do historically documented you know yeah because canada is i think more than the u.s is a country that sort of swallows its own national myth making mm -hmm. and there's very little space in the canadian national like there's quite a bit of um of space in the american sort of national myth making of making the hard decisions to align with 
I don't know, Reinhard Galen or whatever to, um, you know, fight communist influence in Europe. You know, I mean, you, you might disagree with it, but it's sort of, it's come out, it's been metabolized into the sort of American national story. And now there are some people who are like, yeah, fine, whatever, Alan Dulles can do what he wants. Um, and I think that, that Canada, to me, has this sort of impenetrable cloud of smugness about itself. Mm-hmm. That it's that these, the, the, the simple fact, right, that at the sort of, that, that there are these like, you know, that the, there are these um, like fascist affiliations, that fascism has cast its long shadow through the 20th century over Canada is just completely, that smug cloud is impenetrable. That fact just doesn't want to break through because we have this, um, this sort of armor of self-satisfaction that just slides off. Yeah, we hypnotize ourselves into believing that we are good and moral and just and always in relation to the United States, you know, mm-hmm. like we're, we're not as rapidly communist as uh, rapidly anti-communist as, as the United States. But the truth is we did exactly the same things. We just, you know, mm-hmm. we just didn't talk yep. about it very much. Yeah, and you just gave people healthcare, and so everyone, everyone, you know, at least I mean, all I can speak of is from the sort of the external, external public image. You know, it's like you gave everyone healthcare, and suddenly you're like, I don't know, you're like, you're like uh, heaven on earth, yeah. you know, and there, and everyone walks around, uh, you know, like doesn't step on a bug, and it's a totally perfect, harmonious society, and uh, it can do no wrong. It's it's kind of incredible, you know, how how well. Um, Canada has been able to sort of fortify its 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 image of itself, you know, to the outside world, and you know, people here to the extent that you know, to the extent that Americans know anything about any other country, you know, anywhere. Um, I mean, especially its, you know, its its neighbors. I mean, I think Americans know less about its neighbors than they do about countries that are even far, far farther yeah. away. Yeah, um, no, that's absolutely true. But like, to, to the extent that they do know anything about Canada, it's like you know, it would be totally. It's just it's a it's it would be it's a shock to, I mean. It's a shock uh, to, to to learn that uh, the country, you know, small as it is, took this huge inf- influx of, of Nazis yeah. uh, and 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 Nazi collaborators and people who uh, engage in the, in the in the Holocaust and you know who uh, and who continue to espouse these views uh, in, inside Canada, inside their communities, uh, inside inside Ukrainian immigrant communities, and sort of changed the face of um, Ukrainian Canadians' life in a, in, a, in, a, in a huge way. The fact that that it would happen, it would just it's 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 unthinkable, you know. Um, it doesn't jive at all with the cute um, vision that we have of Canada yeah. over here, you know. Or, thanks to or, thanks to, to be honest, yeah. the cute vision of Canada that most Canadians have. Yeah, and that's that. In my you know digging into this over the last five years, like that's something that I've run up in, run up into again and again. I mean, including well, probably beginning with um, just innocently asking Jesse Brown if he would. Ever, if Canada Land would ever do an expose on what we're about to talk about right now, and then just getting you know laughed at essentially, <laughs> um, like like that that interaction, as stupid and pointless as it was, is generally I think the ideology of everyone working in media. They're just they're not interested in engaging with this. There's a kind of force field around this history that. Um, somehow keeps it from public you know but i want to i want to talk about like i want to talk about how this started and you know to do that we have to go back to 
the first wave of Ukrainian immigration. Um, Canada's got the world's third largest Ukrainian population behind Russia and Ukraine. So in the 1890s, we saw like a, a first wave of Ukrainian immigration, and it's mostly people fleeing poverty and famine. And they're all generally coming from the same part of what we now call Ukraine. They're coming from Bukovina, uh, which is, you know, parts of southern Ukraine, Romania and Moldova. And they're coming from Austrian Galicia, um, leaving behind one of the poorest and most overpopulated regions in Europe. Um, and at that time, Canada's Minister of the Interior, Clifford Sifton, he encouraged this influx because he wanted and I'm, I'm quoting from him here. He wanted stalwart peasants in sheepskin coats born to the soil to populate the land and work the prairies. So he, he took out his uh, phrenology calipers and we're like, yep, you look like you can pull a plow. Get over here. Yeah. Um, and also, exactly. I think it's, it's, it's also, I think one of the other things to mention here, right, is Yasha, you talked about like, one of the things people think about when they think of Canada is like the, um, is, is like things like free healthcare. It's like, well, a lot of those places are the, where the first wave of like Ukrainian refugees, uh, Ukrainian immigrants rather were settled. Um, and there they had like, you know, their, they're they're sort of more sort of radical political alignment. Like that's where free healthcare came from. Like it wasn't a Toronto invention. It wasn't an Ottawa invention. It was a Prairie's invention. Yeah, that's right. right. So you know you've got these these uh, this first wave of immigrants living in what were called block settlements, um, doing mostly agricultural work and forming, you know, as you do forming benevolent associations. So you had a Catholic association, you had an Orthodox association, and then you had the Ukrainian Labor Farmer Temple Association, which transformed itself into something called the Association of United Canadian Ukrainians. Um, this was the leftist organization, and uh, they are not a member of the current UCC, the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, which is which is pretty telling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you yeah. know, like so. There's a second wave in 1923. Um, most of the again, most of the Ukrainians coming to settle Canada are from um, Galicia, but also Poland and Bessarabia, so Moldova. And this kind of underscores, I feel like, the imaginary nature of the like fascist homeland of Galicia, because because this homeland really extended beyond the borders of what we what is now Ukraine and uh, what we used to think of as Ukraine. This is this is kind of a multinational territory, right? Um, so I mean, th- that's that's one question I've got, just because I'm not as as up on this history specifically as 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 you guys might be. Um, the whole concept of Galicius keeps coming up and coming up and coming up, but it comes up as this, as you say, sort of this nation, this nation that's sort of not coterminous with any state. Uh, why why is that? I mean, I think it's because of you know it's people pushing back against like constantly fluid Austro-Hungarian borders. Like there was those massive upheavals through the 1850s through 1900, and then again with the First World War, and then again with the Second World War. And there's kind of a, I think there's kind of a reason that uh, Mikhailo Chomiak, Christian Freeland's grandfather, ends up in Krakow as a Ukrainian because he believes that it is part of Ukraine. It's it's part of Galicia. So okay, all right, yeah. So yeah, yeah. and well, and also yeah. I mean, it's also like 
the yeah, I mean the the whatever the mythical Ukrainian homeland has never really existed. You know, I mean it's like it's sort of like I mean it's in a way it's kind of like I guess you could say it's like the land, you know Yeretz Israel or Israel or whatever. It's like there's it's it's a fluid because it's never really existed. It exists as an ideological project. It, you know, much like Zionism. I mean Zionism and, and sort of this and and, and nationalism and, and fascism really kind of began at almost you know the exact same times really and and so there but there was never a, a a moment in time when there was the the perfect ukrainian state that could be defined so i mean it was split between austrian you know austrian hungarian empire the russian empire you know and then poland uh you know was basically had control of galicia and sort of the heartland of this of this of this mythical ukrainian homeland and um you know, meanwhile, you know, the Soviet Union uh, had like the rest of it. And so there was never a time when there was unified. So, of course, there's never and there and, you know, the the the, the actual nationalist sort of Ukrainian states that did exist were, were very fleeting and mm -hmm. only controlled small chunks of the territory. Like right after the, you know, the collapse of the Russian Empire and sort of the Bolshevik Revolution, there was a you know, there was a, several Ukrainian states that existed on this sort of the territory of the of, of today's modern Ukraine. Um, and, you know, one was like basically in a, a, a sort of an occupation, you know, a, a German-backed government. The other one was a sort of like roving kind of uh, um, Ukrainian government that was, was also short-lived, you know, that was headed by Petlu Petlura. And, and so it's, um, yeah, because again, like, so the na Ukrainian nationalist project never really existed, you know, in reality. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it was always on paper. And I mean, the, the funny thing about it is that actually... As much as like you know uh, the Ukrainian emigrant uh, community and especially the sort of the the, the kind of the right emigre uh, the right wing emigre Ukrainian community you know blames Stalin for basically planning a genocide against the Ukrainian um, against the Ukrainian people uh, with a, you know what they think is like a planned famine specifically designed to eradicate Ukrainians from the face of the earth which is kind of contradicted by by you know uh, by scholarly research on the subject. But but Stalin is the guy who actually created with the closest thing to a perfect Ukrainian homeland, bringing together um, the parts of Ukraine that were uh, occupied by, you know, or controlled by Poland, right? Mm -hmm. And joining it to the part of Ukraine that had been historically controlled by uh, more or less, the, you know, the Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union. And so he joined the sort of the, the left and, the, and then the right bank, you know, the West and East together. Mm -hmm. And that was a Stalin, that Stalin did that. And so the Ukrainian, you know, homeland that is... Uh, that is that is uh, that exists today for the first time, you know, like since the collapse of this, you know, since the Soviet Union basically created uh, this mythic Ukrainian homeland is the closest thing uh, that's ever existed to it. And so, yeah. yeah, so it's like it's, you know, it's an ideological nationalist project, you know, the idea that that there is a Ukraine that, uh, you know, holds these Ukrainian people that is pure. That uh, you know, you know the idea. You know, it's it's kind of ridiculous on its face, right? I mean, it's it occupies a swath of um, of land that's occupied by many different ethnicities, um, and so like just like you know, just just like a lot of, sort of nationalist movements, you know, they they try to create this mythical um, pure space for for their own for their own kind, and so of course it's 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 it always yeah. morphs. And then yeah. those other those other ethnicities that sort of. I've been there for a long time, become a problem to solve, effectively. Yes. Become a problem to cleanse. Yeah, yeah. or they become othered, you know, just <laughs> like the, um, the magical transmutation of people living in eastern Ukraine from uh, Ukrainians to Russians to, you know, they are, they are transformed into, uh, quote-unquote, Russians. 
I mean, you know, it's funny too, because I know that like, um, you know, the sort of the, so you, you mentioned the early wave of Ukrainians that came to Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's, you know, some of them came to in, in the first part of the 20th century. Um, and some of them came, um, you know, came, settled in America as well. Uh, and, you know, they didn't even consistently even see themselves as Ukrainian, right? I mean, they saw themselves in various ways. They saw themselves as look, the Ruth, Ruth, Ruthenian, uh, Rutherians, yeah. right? They call Ruthenians, yeah, they call themselves Ruthenians, and, and they, sometimes they just call themselves Russians because no one would really understand what a Ukrainian is or a Ruthenian is. So it's like their own identity was because they hadn't yet been completely, you know, this idea, this this national identity of, of, of a Ukrainian person was, first of all, kind of limited to a small set of people, even in sort of what's, you know, kind of um, in Eastern Ukraine, or I mean, in Western mm-hmm. Ukraine. In Eastern Ukraine, it, it all, like, it was, it was even much more amorphous than that. There was not less na- sort of national identity or the idea that you're part of this you know, historical, you know, uh, it, continuum, um, permanent, yeah. you know, continuum of, of Ukrainian people. So it was, it was a very, it's a very recent thing, you know, uh, and uh, some of the early immigrants that came to America, to America and to Canada, to the West from this part of the, uh, of uh, the Austro-Hungarian empire and sort of the Russian empire. I mean, they didn't necessarily even consider themselves Ukrainian in like the idea. I mean, it was part of their identity mm-hmm. uh, on some level, but it wasn't like the overarching label that you put on yourself you would know it, that's, that, have, that, that exists now would yeah. it have been like a, a, a someone who we, we'd now consider to be a german at the time and have said well i'm a bavarian yeah right something yeah. like that yeah. yeah yeah but even maybe even more yeah exactly but even maybe even more specific yeah. that they're just from this sort of region and they're from this place and they speak these languages and so because a lot of these a lot of the villages that, that existed at the time were mixed you know mixed polish ukrainian you know jewish, jewish. i mean uh, and the cities were mixed Harder. and the cities were yeah. mixed so it's like yeah so there was like, and there's exactly, and so there's, um, depending where you were on the map, you know, of sort of, of today's Ukraine, you know, it, it like, it, your identity kind of switched. And so it was, again, and the, the, the very, it's, 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 it's kind of hard for us to, I think, really imagine. And it is, it's hard for me to imagine this stuff like that, a world where nationalism, the idea of, of a nation, an idea of like a national identity or kind of an ethno-nationalist identity didn't really exist or was just beginning to kind of like percolate yeah. um, from like the sort of intellectual classes at the time. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to even like imagine a world like that, right? Because like, what's your, how do you think of yourself then, you know? Um, if you don't think of yourself in that, in that, in that way. Let's yeah. talk about that. Cause like, so the second wave that moves to Canada, they, whether they identify as capital U Ukrainian or capital G Galician, they they do form a kind of political consciousness around their um, community, and that is basically because they work on farms in factories, uh, and they have the political consciousness to go with that. So, mm-hmm. in the twenties, the ULTFA founds like what Riley was talking about, the Workers Benevolent Association in Winnipeg, which is the first, as far as I know, the first organization in this country to provide healthcare. And that healthcare extended beyond their own, uh, let's say, ethnic diaspora, right? Like, so you didn't have to be Ukrainian to go to these labor temples to the or to the WBA and get um, health coverage. And they expand across the country. There's mm-hmm. 1937. That's interesting. There's like yeah. 30 wow. branches. And then in 19... 19- so how are they financed? Uh, yeah. Community donation. Do you know how they finance? Community financed? donations. And then eventually... Three years later, in 1940, they're banned under the Wartime Defense of Canadian Regulations Act uh, because they yeah. ta- tacitly supported the Soviet Union. So a lot of these yeah, temples you, uh, get confiscated. Um, they're sort of uh, 
labor halls are shut down um, and and sort of remanded to the state. Mm hmm. Uh, interesting. In 1940, they're banned for their support of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Almost as though Canada uh, knew where things were going. <laughs> they yeah. were like, "Look, we're we're going to try to get out ahead of this. We know who the real enemy is. You know, we're um we're we're here hanging. We're here trying to pursue a separate peace. You know, <laughs> preserve. <laughs> That's the, pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, uh, the timing is uh, auspicious. You know." <laughs> so they're already printing they're already printing the Nazi flags you know the, for the welcome yeah, parties that's right. yeah so we're, so we're talking about the yeah. formation of like a Ukrainian identity and and to answer Wait, this Eugene <laughs> Dolman what are you doing in Saskatoon <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, yeah uh, welcome to the Klaus Barbie barbershop um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're uh, we've, 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 we've opened haircuts. yeah don't look in the <laughs> yeah, back we yeah, well, they, we've we've they've opened the Klaus Barbie barbershop in Edmonton just in advance of him ha knowing he's going to have to leave at some point. Exactly. <laughs> Don't worry, you can come here. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but it it is it is it is very it's very telling, right? That they were like, oh, oh you can't if if you can't have any free you can't have free healthcare unless you just, unless you because it might make you Soviet. <laughs> You're going to have to die like a good capitalist farmhand. That's right. Um, yeah. So, and, so, and then, of course, we're going to take the idea and be like, "Thank you to the NDP for giving the country <laughs> socialized medicine," which which awesome. they do. Yeah, they give them credit. But um, okay, so at the same time, we have this uh, nationalist identity that you were talking about, Yasha. This 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 these ideas that are fomenting in the Ukrainian bourgeois class back in the motherland, and to answer the question of how did this happen, I have to ask you. And the motherland is 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 uh, just to uh, just to listeners who kind of understand and get over it. the Ukrainian motherland at this point is in Poland. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, to, <laughs> yeah. so to understand how this happened, I have to ask you, Yasha, who who is Stepan Bandera, and why do certain people get upset if you call him a fascist? I mean, he's a guy who's he's a protector of the Jews, is what, is what I know about him. Um, well, no, Stepan Madera is uh, is just a you know he's a, one of the more uh, he's like the kind of the more the most charismatic um, um, leaders of uh, a, a Ukrainian nationalist or fascist movement that um, that um, erupted that, that sort of began in the beginning of the 20th century um, and in 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 Austria Hungary and then in, in Poland and he sort of took took control of his own part of this organization called the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists which is an explicitly kind of uh fascist um um political uh party with a paramilitary wing that was explicitly fat molded and kind of uh, based around the sort of the Nazi version of fascism the kind of the blood and soil version of fascism and he was an extremely charismatic leader um he was became became i think he's the son of a of a of a pre, of, of of clergy of a, his father was a priest he grew up and became very at a very early young age entered into the ukrainian nationalist movement um at the time uh and became very active uh when um uh when sort of galicia was under uh, polish control and uh, spent a lot of times in, in polish prisons and um and um you know uh when um so so yeah so he's just a he's a he's a guy who who and his his whole thing was to create um you know to just to to, to keep it simple because there's like you know the, the history of the ukrainian nationalist movement it's like 
it's like it's like a can of worms that starts to sort of they kind of start to crawl away immediately because there's so many splits, so many sort of disagreements, right. there's so many in, fights within the organization the organization themselves. But you know, he kind of emerges as as the, as the top leader, um, especially during the war, uh, and and became kind of the the rallying cry of of Ukrainians after the war as well. So he was he's kind of the main um ukrainian nationalist and fascist leader and you know his 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 um goal you know his his what he wanted for ukraine was to create an ethnically pure ukraine free of jews free of poles free of any kind of other ethnicities and he wanted to create um and he proclaimed in 1941 um in in lviv or in lvov um a kind of an independent um uh ukrainian state mm-hmm. uh that was uh sort of uh that pledged its allegiance to Nazi Germany and wanted to be kind of a vassal state. Right. And, um, you know, Germany was, wasn't having that. So immediately after they did that, they kind of dismissed him and put him in jail and kind of a VIP jail. Um, but, but he was, and, and from, from, you know, his, his position in that jail, he instructed um, members of the organization of the, of the, of the organization, of Ukraine nationalists and its paramilitary wing, um, the, UPA, um, he, you know, he basically told them to join the Nazis and to join the, to, to join them and, and sort of work in, in, in German uh, auxiliary battalions and sort of help, help run the occupation of Ukraine. Right. Uh, when, when, when Germany didn't um, sort of uh, recognize as independent state, even though it was, he wanted to be a vassal state. Because the Germans at the time, I mean, they, they found the Ukrainians useful. But they'd never wanted any kind of independent state for Ukraine. I mean, you know, Hitler was very explicit about Ukraine being the kind of like, you know, Germany's California, yeah. right? I mean, he, yeah, he saw, you know, he, I mean, he said that specifically, he saw Ukraine as, as Germany's like, you know, it's good weather, uh, great fertile soil, <laughs> uh, great beaches. <laughs> well, you got the Black Sea, uh, so right? So he wasn't going to give it, to, yeah, so he wasn't going to give it to these Ukrainians, you know, even though they were totally swore fealty to the Nazi plan and, and to, to Nazi, you know, sort of, um, um, to Nazi Germany and to Hitler yeah. completely. Um, and, and so he was just the leader, the main leader of a, of, of a, you know, a particularly violent and particularly extremist version, uh, wing of uh, Ukrainian nationalists and Ukrainian fascists, um, sort of in the interwar period and in, in World yeah. War II. And, and yeah. one of the people who um, subscribed to that sort of middle period, uh, you know, the, the direct collaboration with uh, the occupying Nazi government was Christia mm-hmm. Freeland's grandfather. And I want to take yeah. a second because... Oh, you named her. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, you can't... It looks like everyone who, uh, who doesn't Nate. pay for the podcast is going gonna, is gonna to know what, what we're talking about in the next one. It wasn't Kim Campbell after all. God damn it, Nate, cut that out. <laughs> so, you know, and, and I want to preface this by saying when... Hmm... When criticism is leveled against our our uh, you know a beloved Christia Freeland, a lot of people talk about uh, you know the actions of her grandfather Mihailo Chomiak being just something that happened during the war. Uh, I think Max Fawcett, uh, like centrist ding dong pundit, uh, said it kind of summed up this attitude best a couple weeks ago when he said the right hates Freeland because she's a journalist. Whatever the, you know, so there's that. Yeah, and then, absolutely. And then the, the right la- hates journalists. <laughs> they just like to watch guys yell at phones in cars. Exactly. Which is true. That's and true, the, actually. And the left hates, uh, the left hates her because of the Nazi stuff. 
Um, but I want to get into the Nazi stuff and and her grandfather in particular. So he's born in Lviv in 1905. Um, he attaches himself to this uh, emerging Ukrainian nationalist movement, several different iterations of it. Um, and he ends up running Krakowski Vishti, which is Krakow News. So... Mm-hmm. Krakowski Vishti. And, and, we're, and our main thing is we're saying she only got a job in journalism because of nepotism. <laughs> exactly. That's the main criticism. <laughs> but actually, I don't, it's actually, it's actually true kind of, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It, it's, I mean, she, I mean, I, I mean, can we make a thing? We, we, she only got a job in journalism because her, de- her grandfather got into the newspaper business, uh, you know, back in the homeland. <laughs> That's exactly. right. Just, just because he happened to edit a newspaper that flourished in the early 40s in Eastern Europe. Crack up. No, like, not only uh, the newspaper is housed in the fucking yeah. Central Committee building in Krakow, which is a building on what yeah. was then called Gruenstrasse. Uh it's a shared building. Uh, the Ukrainian press is headquartered there, as well as German military intelligence, Abwehr. So, yeah. you know. And, sh- and then the, the, the U.S. bombed it because they were like, look, I know that the Ukrainian press organization was there, but also this office of Abwehr was there as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I might be misremembering it, but I'm, but I'm pretty sure, because it's been a while since I looked at this, but I'm pretty sure that um, there is believed that some of the uh, printing presses were actually seized from a Jewish newspaper that had been r- running, you know, before uh, uh, Germany uh, invaded, uh, you know, or, you know, Germany invaded Poland and basically shipped off all the Jews into concentration well, camps. Um, so, well, Yasha, not, and also, not just yeah, the printing yeah, presses. Yeah. Um, I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit. Uh, and and read from some correspondence from Chomiak to uh, to his uh, German superiors. Also, the apartments that he lived in were seized. Yeah, yeah, that's so, true. So, mm-hmm. in a letter written uh, by Chomiak to Nazi authorities, he lists fifteen pieces of furniture which he said had been left behind by quote the Jew Doctor Finkelstein. Um, <laughs> Ch- Ch- he had a good. Did he? Did he talk? <laughs> Yeah. Shobiak <laughs> asks permission to move all of these furnishings to his second Aryanized apartment. And after moving into the appropriated apartment in Kezhimirsh, which was historically a Jewish neighborhood in Krakow, where um, all of the Jews were pogromed or put into ghettos, um, Shomiak wrote another letter to the Nazi authorities demanding compensation for the move because, and I'm quoting from the letter here, the apartment I assigned a former Jewish property was so verminous and filthy, I was forced to refurbish and disinfect the whole apartment at my own expense. God, those Jews, man. They really, they really, you should, I hope you lost his deposit on that apartment. That's, <laughs> yeah. what, I, that's what I hope. Jeez, you know? yeah. I mean, I, Dr. Finkelstein, you know, you should be ashamed yeah, of yourself. Leave, leaving behind and, such and, a and mess. Just, <laughs> <laughs> but also just like, yeah, when when you're when when Freeland is sort of asked to like disavow this guy that has done this stuff, who said that, uh, she has consistently refused to do it because uh, he's her uh, grandpa, and we don't denounce her grandpa. Well, yeah. yeah, we could never. Yeah, no, and and she's and she's and she can stay quiet about him, but she uses him actually as a you know in her various tweets and you know public proclamations and she's she's holds him up as a, as a, as an inspiration to her life and is like an inspiration to her values. Um, so it's, she doesn't just like not denounce him. 
you know, she actually uses his experience to to bolster her own, um, you know, uh, her, her own values. And she says that her values come from her, her, her grandfather. That's so the it's, thing. Yeah, yeah. Totally. That's the thing. Yeah. yeah. They do. She's not lying. No, <laughs> you no, know, it's it's, true. Yeah. if you look, she's, she's, she's honest. Yeah, if you, if you look at her, uh, you know, like I say, liberal, liberal anti-communism is, uh, yeah. let's just say it's, uh, it's willing to make a lot of compromises. A lot of compromises. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. So the whole, you know, I was looking at, I was trying to look at some of the archives cause I actually found a, a while ago, just some of the archives of, um, you know, of, <laughs> of, um, of, uh, the, this newspaper that her grandfather worked for uh and it's like it's it's kind of incredible man it's just like it's basically it's like it, look it, it's just straight up i mean it's like there there's stuff about like local events mm-hmm. and there's you know people looking for uh selling things yeah, you know a, like a there's classifieds and so you, you know you so it's like it's kind job. of interesting there's like yeah there's yeah. like a war raging you know it's like 19 yeah there's a there's it's world war ii is like all around and you know there, it's so there's but there's still kind of a life in Krakow that sort of seems somewhat yeah. normal. It, you know, people are l- looking for help. People are selling stuff. People are are looking to buy things. There are some. They're like you know uh, news stories on you know like local cultural events and stuff like that. Um, and then but then like you know on the front page of uh, usually uh, uh, of, the, of the paper it's always like the, a speech from Hitler. Yeah. Uh, it's all there's all these like recruitment ads for the you know for the for the um, Galitzin SS division. Yeah, yeah I. I- um, so it's a, it's a, it, so the, so the, the newspaper, um, wasn't just like, you know, housed in a, you know, in an office with, uh, sort of the German occupation government. Uh, it's not just using, um, uh, printing presses that are believed to have been seized from a Jewish newspaper that operated in the, in Krakow after all the Jews have been shipped off to concentration camps. It's not just that the editor of this newspaper, uh, who was, he was pretty young at the time. I think he was in his early thirties yeah. or maybe 30, um, when he took control, you know, is actually living in a fucking apartment <laughs> and using furniture that would belong to a murdered fucking Jew, yeah. you know? Uh, it's that the newspaper itself was an organ, a propaganda organ of the occupation government. Yeah, um, it was, it, it was um, the biggest propaganda organ in, um, in that part of Nazi-occupied Europe. So, like, uh, Chomiak would report directly to Emil Gassner, who was the Galician propaganda minister. And at the time, and this kind of blew my mind, that the paper was not just the biggest propaganda organ in that area. It was the most widely read Ukrainian publication on the planet. They printed 22,000 copies a day. Um, yeah. And in time when I, I think, you know, uh, paper was extremely difficult to get a hold of. I mean, there were, obviously everything was uh, commandeered for the war effort. And so... You know, the you know there was considerable resources put to printing out this paper because obviously it was important for the control of the local population and all, and all this stuff. Yeah, no, it's I mean it's yeah, and he and he took this job willingly actually. You know, so it wasn't like he was put. You know, there was a, there was a gun put to his head, and uh, he said, "If you take this job, or we put you in a ditch." Mm-hmm. I mean, this was you know there these were voluntary positions. Well, also, like ha- of of the actual sort of machinery of of Nazi government. Like fully half the people there thought of themselves as moderates who by their influence would moderate the um the the Nazi war machine, who thought that they could talk Hitler down from being stupid. Right? Yeah, what, what, what they saw is that, right? But, <laughs> I mean, but that'd be pretty but, that'd be pretty but that's, that's, that, I mean that but, I, that would, but, that's that's the yeah, argument that fully. probably okay, you know so, Christy Freeland would yeah. <laughs> would use. But I do I, I like that argument though. It's what, a good but one. What I'm sa- basically what I'm saying, yeah. right, is like that is that it doesn't matter if you sort of become the... if Because, like, the argument sometimes that I see come up, right, is that Chomiak, it's like, oh, well, no, he was the editor of a newspaper, and the Nazis came in, and they made it, and they 
and they took it over. And well, so that was, he was, that was so Justin yeah. Ling's argument. That is, you yeah. know, like, but, but what I'm saying, right, is that if you're, it doesn't, if you're a part of the Nazi war machine, that's like, so trying to like be a moderating influence from the inside, you're still a part of the Nazi war machine, right? Like, there, either you know you the only way you can be on the inside of the Nazi war machine and have people be like, okay, you're all right, is if you're like uh, von Stuffenberg and you do the briefcase plot. Yeah, totally, right? totally. Like I the, mean, you're talking about a guy. You're talking <laughs> about about a guy who edited the, and printed this sentence uh, from a recruitment uh, ad. You must stand shoulder to shoulder with the invincible German army and destroy once and for all the Judeo-Bolshevik beast. And this is, you know, uh, getting people to join the Galician division. So there's, the, uh, yeah, I mean, that's it. There's no real argument. <laughs> and, you know, what's interesting, so, so you know, so even like, you know, what's, what's funny about this, this scandal, because I guess maybe we'll get to it later on, but because, but, because, uh, you know, it became, you know, a huge political scandal in Canada, obviously, right? And, and you know, it was blamed on, you know, the, the, when this news kind of really surfaced, for the first time, um, when in, in 2019, yeah. right, uh, it, it really became a big thing, you know. Um, but the fact is that this was well known in kind of and 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 I guess in obscure academic circles, um, the the connection of, of her grandfather, the fact that he ran a, a you know a, a Nazi propaganda newspaper in um, Nazi occupied uh, Poland, right? I mean, this was known going back to the 90s, and the guy who wrote about it, the academic who wrote about it, is actually his own is. Christopher Freeland's cousin, right? His John Paul yeah, Himka. That's right. They're, they're they're cousins, right? So he's uh, so it was it, and and he and he was and, and the, the the article that he the academic article that he published in in I think in the late nineties um, was pretty damning, even though he tried to whitewash some of the aspects of this operation. Yeah, it was ninety six. Um, I think it was, that yeah. came out, and and yeah, you're right. He he, <laughs> it's it's hard to read that and not um, and not feel very angry about what happened afterwards. So it's it's actually kind of incredible that it but it was sort of floated around and I don't even remember coming across this although I didn't really know who I didn't really I mean I knew who she, I knew that she was sort of around I think when I first started looking into this kind of digging deep into the you know the history of Ukrainian nationalism and uh, the the OUN the organization of Ukrainian nationalists and sort of paramilitary division uh the U, UPA uh you know when all these symbols started to float up to the surface after Maidan and during Maidan mm -hmm. you know like it really I kind of knew that you know that that this that that I knew about this you know on a kind of superficial level, but I didn't really understand the depth of, of of this history and its connection to to the modern Ukrainian nationalist movement. You know, it really it really struck me, and I think a lot of other people. You know, in two thousand fourteen, when it, when it sort of popped up to yeah, the surface, me, definitely, um, um, that was kind of the moment I got interested in this. It catalyzed something in my brain. <laughs> and you know, when I when I went there, because um, I went to sort of to the. I, I reported um, um, sort of from 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 Ukraine. I took a kind of a, a pretty long reporting trip that I went to. I didn't get to go to the front lines, but I kind of came close to it from both the, the west and the east side, from the Ukrainian and the Russian side. And I was hanging out with some Ukrainians um, in um, there, and uh, these sort of uh, sort of small business owner types that were you know pretty liberal, kind of uh, used to go to Russia all the time, have all these Russian friends. Um, from Kharkov, uh, they, you know, he owned some kind of small business, some kind of tour, tour business, a, uh, tourism business. And I was, I was so, so surprised, like they basically were spouting, you know, like straight up Nazi, you know, Ukrainian fascist propaganda about the, you know, about Ukrainian history and about, you know, the Russian people, 
you know, they were saying that for the first time, you know, when, after this war, they started to really, um, you know, they kind of what they understood that what they knew about the history of Russia and the history of Ukraine was all like basically communist propaganda mm-hmm. that, you know, and that they started to sort of un- uh, uncover this other alternative history, the, a more real history. They learned about Stepan Bandera. They learned about all these sort of nationalist sort of philo- philosophers and thinkers of, of Ukrainian nationalism. And began to realize that there's this huge, di- you know, genetic division <laughs> between the Ukrainian people and um, and the Russian people, and that the Russian people, it's all rooted in the fact that the Russians were supposedly in bondage, you know, slaves much longer mm-hmm. than the, Ukraine, the Ukrainian right. people. That the, that so they were bred to be slaves. Mm-hmm. That they were sort of genetically, so the, the, you know, sort of modified. So there's a eugenics angle to this, yeah. And so I was like, and when I went there, it was 2014. It was like uh, August, September, 2014. And I was like, what the fuck is this? You know, it's like, this is a guy. And he's like, yeah, I used to, you know, I have all these friends. I used to have all these friends in Russia. I used to go to uh, St. Petersburg all the time to watch for the football matches. I was like a big fan of Russia. It's like, I don't go there anymore. I've cut all my contacts with these people, you know, and he's like, you know, helping organize the SBU, which is the, the you know, the, the kind of the... The KG, the Ukrainian KGB successor agency to the Ukrainian KGB. He was like doing like, you know, uh, doing underground, you know, training and, you know, in case like the, how to fight the Russian occupation. So they're creating right. like underground cells and sort of learning how to fight and all these things and, like, and also collecting obviously stuff for the front. Anyway, so there was like this radicalization of people who used to be just like regular liberal Ukrainians who, you know, saw themselves as very close to the Russian culture and the Russian people. And suddenly there was this big fucking rift. And, and so I was like, whoa, who are these people and where does this come from? And so I started kind of digging into it. And I, and I strangely, I, I, I'm pretty sure that I came across, you know, this paper that uh, John Paul uh, Himka wrote, but I like didn't really know who uh, Christian Freeland was and it didn't really, you know, make an impression on me. Um, but I like, I, so I kind of came across it, you know, so in 2014, but it never really surfaced in Canadian politics mm-hmm. until, you know, these two other basically, you know, Ukrainian Canadians found it, found like, a secondary, you know, in, in, independent, right, um, sort of verification of, of the same information and kind of surfaced it. So, I, I, it's kind of surprising to me that, like, you know, I don't know, this isn't really known mm-hmm. uh, and that, or that maybe, I don't well, know, it, I don't know, I don't know where I, I kind of lost my no, train of thought it, there. It is honest. known, right? That these things are, are sort of known. They're just not allowed to be publicly known. They're not, of, the, of yeah. the things that become common knowledge that two people could walk up to one another and sort of just reason from the basis of, right? Like you talk about yeah. um, uh, 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 inscribing some knowledge on this big other, you know, like the, these yeah. things that are sort of held to be true. You know, these that are just, um, <laughs> they are not, they're, they're, it's, it's knowledge that sort of resists encoding as, as mutually acceptable. Yeah. It's not, yeah, it's not, it's not alert. It's not, it's not allowed to, to surface and to be validated, right? In a kind of an, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a kind of a mainstream, in a mainstream manner. I mean, you know, so it's like, you know, what, what's interesting is so, so, so I, I kind of lost my track, but I want, I want uh, John Paul Himka, you know, what's interesting about him is that he's, you know, one of the kind of the good things that he does with his paper, other than the fact that he sort of then blames Jews for the fact that Ukrainians don't like them, you know, like he spends a, half of his paper actually blaming the Jews for uh, Ukrainian anti-Semitism. But anyway, the first part of the paper is fucking is good because he looks at um, a particular anti-Semitic campaign that was ordered by um, um, Mr. Chomak's um, 
you know, superiors basically mm-hmm. saying that we need like a good, um, you know, anti-Semitic, you know, agitation propaganda, prop campaign. We need you to commission, you know, people to write a bunch of articles about how the Jews are still a threat and are enduring threat. And, you know, to basically and, 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 and at a time when you know, Jew, this is 1940, well, this is actually already, I think, you know, after all the Jews have been rounded up and shipped off to concentration camps and probably, and, you know, Polish Jews and, and already most of them have been burned. Um, and so, to, to basically make sure that people are aware that, you know, the Jews are still a threat, even though there are no Jews left in Poland, yeah. you know, yeah. um, that aren't like in a camp and being, that are, and are being gassed, you know. So, um, so, so, and, and so he, he does a pretty good job of kind of looking at some of the correspondence around it and that, that, and that, um, that, you know, this was kind of a big, this is an important job for him. He knew that he had to do it. Um, and he, you know, was like soliciting a bunch of people to do it. And some of the people that he solicited to write these things that were basically quoting you know, elders of Zion, you know, uh, propaganda and, you know, justifying the need to destroy the Jews and to, to, you know, talking about how, you know, bad they were for, for Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian society, these Jews and how their evil influences sort of has not been totally eradicated from the world and we must be vigilant. You know, a lot, some of those contributors actually then moved to Canada. Yeah. And became prominent, yeah, yeah, uh, prominent, you know, can, members of the Canadian, Ukrainian, Canadian. So I want to, I want to yeah. talk about that as as we sort of push on to the end of of this first part. But you know, so the people that you talked to in Ukraine in 2014, who were learning this new history, uh, this this new sort of deeply fascist, you know, eugenics related history uh, of the country that they lived in, the I mean, I personally believe the reason that ideology uh, came back is because it was it left the motherland and was imported to places like Canada, Australia, and the United States, and then uh, sat here and just fermented and was allowed to ferment, and then was reimported back in after the fall of the Soviet Union. So it, I, it wasn't just it wasn't just fermented. I'd say it was cleaned and sort of like um, stripped of its of its Nazi yes, associations yes. and of, of its not sort of war, wartime uh, fascist and Nazi associations and its associations with the Holocaust and all these things. And so, yeah. So I mean, that, that's one of the main things that the Ukrainian um, emigres that left that 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 were allowed to come into Canada and into America as well after World War II. I mean, one thing that they did, the, the main thing that they did is they kept the sort of the fascist flame alive and obviously re- and rebranded that fascist flame as a democratic movement mm-hmm. and stripped it all of the sort of the warts, you know, the fascist mm-hmm. warts um, on kind of just on the surface level, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the, the overt Nazism, the overt anti-Semitism, that kind of stuff. Although I think it still existed in large, in, in, in big measure, like in, th- you know, in, in, in private sort of these sort of in private and in sort of private memoirs and in things that weren't for sort of mass consumption. Um, and then they built up in a sort of a, kind of almost like a, a um, credible body of work, right, of sort of a, a new kind of hist- history of, of their own movement um, that's been cleansed and then published those things um, and then slowly began kind of leaking them back into the Soviet Union, right? Um, but then, of course, when the Soviet Union collapsed and, you know, controls stopped, like it flooded back into Ukraine and sort of and a new wave of, 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 of Ukrainian nationalism um sort of erupted 
cleansed of its fascist associations and cleansed of its Nazi associations. So, I mean, they, they did a really good job with it. And of course they had help from, you know, your fr friendly three letter agencies. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. Here in America. And, and so, here in, um, we, but we can maybe get into here that. here in Canada and, too. And, you know, when, when the Canadian government did import, uh, you know, thousands of the most mobilized fascists uh, on the recommendation of a British intelligence officer, who they had survey the, uh, existing diaspora for uh, communist tendencies when they decided to import these people in um, there was there were two groups that opposed it it was the AUUC who we talked about earlier the the leftist organization mm -hmm. who were crushed and then the Canadian Jewish Congress those were the two groups that sort of raised the alarm and uh, one was crushed and one was ignored so mm -hmm. what happens is what you were saying yeah you get this group of people who usually belong to the bourgeois class imported into these communities and put into positions of relative power, at least for the dissemination of information, working at universities in Chomiak's case, doing exactly what he was doing in Krakow, which is running a newspaper. Um, yeah. No, they, yeah, they became, they became clergy or they became uh, uh, professors. They became in, uh, newspaper uh you know, publishers, the editors, journalists, uh, they went into politics, right? Um, um, you know, and they helped cr craft an, a, a, a kind of a rebranded version of Ukrainian fascism into this kind of um, ethnic identity nationalism that's very, very accepted in, in, in America. I mean, it's kind of incredible, you know, like that, you know, nationalism, you know, people say, oh, you know, how horrible Trump is and how horrible all these fucking Trump supporters are, you know, how nationalist they are. I mean, they're just like kind of like one decibel, you know, m louder and kind of more nationalist or more kind of ridiculous about it than sort of the accepted nationalism. That I mean, in, in America here, here in the states, like to be an immigrant, um, and especially to be an immigrant from like a kind of an enemy country, you know, uh, or a, a country that's controlled by the enemy at, the, at, at this, you know, currently, um, and to be a nationalist from you know of the of that ethnicity is totally acceptable and it's actually kind of weird if you're not that i mean it goes it, it works for ukrainian ukrainians it works for you know cubans or mm -hmm. let's say is like a totally accepted mainstream you know um position to have and to be a ukrainian nationalist to believe in the ukraine you know strong ukraine for the ukrainian people that's like a uh, that's like the position of the you know democratic party basically mm -hmm. in, in america you know uh and so it's 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 interesting because then they can sort of they take it's it's totally acceptable to be nationalist and so they kind of you know these these emigrants they use that as cover and to to strip away all the kind of the um yeah all the warts yeah. and all uh, and and to and, and to report them to make themselves patable and and useful and to a liberal to a liberal society that's supposed to supposed to abhor all these things yeah uh so sorry just uh resetting us here because I noticed we're sort of coming towards the end of the hour yeah uh dan do you want to sort of gloss sort of the um the sort of do you gloss the like uh sort of tracy phillips stuff and then how we get to where we are today yeah i kind of i kind of breezed over it but should i yeah go no, into no, not, not necessarily that i just want to say like um where sort of like maybe or even just like spend like three to five minutes just taking us from that position to like uh so some of the specifics of of where we are today. Okay. Right. Okay. Or uh, so, like, like the anti-Bolshevik elite of nations and yeah, yeah. So I'll, and so I'll just go from you know like we talked about the Phillips thing, which I think honestly deserves its own episode because it's 
very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'll just go from uh, the labor temples reappropriated and statues. Okay, okay. Cool. does that does that work? So yeah, sounds good. Okay, so in the early 1950s, we have this influx of uh, demobilized Ukrainian fascists who are injected into the community. Um, you know, and like Yasha is saying, uh, the warts of their ideology are removed, at least for the public. Um, and they go about, you know, uh, creating organizations, fighting the sort of tacitly fighting the uh, leftist Ukrainian organizations in this country, uh, putting up statues to uh, Roman Shukovich or their military divisions, reappropriating these labor temples, all with the support of the Canadian government. So. In this group, uh, Mihailo Chomiak is a, is a part of this group. Um, he starts. He and his cohort kind of start on this program of establishing things like Bandera exalting youth camps, uh, taking control of Ukrainian language media with the help of the Canadian government, and with organization with the help of organizations like the Anti Bolshevik League of Nations. So he's weaponizing the diaspora as a propaganda tool for the West in their battle to defeat the Soviet Union. But this would this, this support would necessitate them making contact with surviving cells of the OUNB and essentially creating a worldwide network of fascists. I don't want to call them ex-fascists because they still believe the things they believed in when they got run out of Ukraine by the Red Army. And this, this network, uh, Truanon refers to it as the spider network. Um, you know, uh, death is around the corner. Michael Judge talks about uh, World War Three, which is basically the battle between capitalism and communism that happened immediately following the end of World War Two. Um, so, you know, these unreconstructed nationalists would be extremely easy for Western intelligence services to work with to advance their own geopolitical aims. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it also like at first, it was one of the reasons, you know, one of the reasons why. Uh, um, you know, American intelligence services, uh, you know, the CIA, but we want, believe that it was good to work with them because they they believe that these they had that that the OUN or the OUNB um, controlled still had access to informants and informant networks in Soviet Ukraine, right? So you know, uh, American intelligence agencies had no like they were blind, you know, as far as that went. They had no they had no way to penetrate. Sort of, they had no idea, no idea to know. Uh, they had no way to know what was going on in the Soviet Union and Soviet Ukraine. So, so they thought that these guys, and, and, and these guys obviously oversold their ability to get information from those, from those territories. Um, and, um, and so th th that's kind of, you know, why they were useful at first, right? It was just for in intelligence purposes, but also there was a belief in, initially that, you know, the, the, these, a lot of these Ukrainian, um, Ukrainian fascists, you know, who wanted, uh, who, who, you know, ha who worked for Nazi Germany, um, before World War II and during World War II, right, and saw it as a natural ally in sort of the creation of their, um, you know, pure Ukrainian state. So initially it was Nazi Germany. Um, they worked with them, and so after the war ended, they immediately, even before the war ended, they were already thinking of like, okay, you know, uh, Germany's going to lose. We're fucked. <laughs> we need a new sponsor, you know, uh, and that sponsor is obviously not going to be the Soviet Union. It's going to be uh, the West. It's going to be America. It's going to be Western Europe. And so, all, even before the war, they already began to kind of like rebrand themselves into 
into into democracy, you know, people into fighters for democracy rather than fighters for fascism and fighter for Nazism, fighters for Nazism. And so, and so they upsold their capabilities. They said, look, we first of all have this you know, stay behind network of people mm -hmm. in Ukraine. Um, we can provide intelligence, A. Also, these people are ready to rise up. We know that they're ready to rise up. All they need is a spark. Yeah. And so, in those first years after the war, you know, um, all these paramilitary, all these like, you know, Uk Ukrainian fascist, uh, you know, paramilitary guys were dropped, uh, parachuted in behind, you know, behind the border in the Soviet Union and um, to, to sort of, to start up the revolt, to, 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 to get the people fired up. You know, of, of course, that didn't happen. They got captured, they got executed immediately. Yeah. Um, and, th and, th and those operations didn't last very long, but they kind of sold themselves as, as the people who knew what was going on on the ground and could fire up a revolution. And so, you know, it, it made sense to work. It made sense for the American intelligence agencies uh you know who are again yeah that's a good point you know they were gearing up to fight world war three already or already fighting world, world war three that these guys are natural allies um they're fucking dumber than shit they're ready to die mm -hmm. you know for this fucking cause and ready to be just fucking you know thrown into the meat grinder i mean you just parachute into certain death yeah. you know um and um you know they're they, they might have some uh, if they don't have real intelligence to offer they at least can offer us fake intelligence and then we can justify yeah. you know increased yeah, budgets and, you know, and, and to, to ramp up the and, fear uh, yeah, yeah get exactly like these, for more money for radio free liberty radio free ukraine whatever so basically it's like they're they're great for internal propaganda basically they're good for propaganda not just um you know, later on, they became good for propaganda against the Soviet Union. So they would produce these pamphlets, they would produce this literature that extol their, you know, sort of the Ukrainian nationalist past and, and try to like, you know, inject this sort of nationalism ideology back into the Soviet Union. But even before that happened, they were great for propaganda, you know, domestic propaganda that could be, you know, that could be directed at the American public or at the yeah, Canadian yeah. public. Yeah, and that's, right? th that's um, where and we're so, at here. Yeah. Like we're, you know, we're going to wrap this, uh, we're going to wrap this episode up with, at that point, I think, with Chomiak firmly settled in Alberta, uh, with mm. he and his and his cohort uh shaving the warts off of this ideology and making it palatable for the canadian public and you know in the next episode we're going to see canada's uh attempt at uh canada's version of parachuting somebody in behind enemy lines <laughs> you'll be surprised to hear who that person is <laughs> kim campbell yeah kim campbell um uh, well, um, for those of you who are are leaving us now, uh, I want to say thanks very much to Yasha for coming and talking to us today. Um, but for those of you who are not leaving us now, um, then we will see you on Patreon. Yes.